Dr. Megan Gerber is a general internist with a career-long focus on the medical care of trauma-exposed women. We start out defining trauma and then get introduced to trauma-informed care. Interfacing with the medical system and physicians can be traumatizing in and of itself and triggering. So we discussed ways to minimize that. We also discussed that it isn't actually important to identify those who need trauma-informed care off the bat, as we should be taking a universal precautions-like approach to everybody. She teaches how to incorporate a routine of respectful care and how you can get the staff involved. The approach to patient really needs to change from questions like, what's wrong with you, to what happened to you? But this needs to happen within the confines of our time-limited schedules, so Dr. Gerber teaches us how to be effective while still respecting the time of those in the waiting room. She's currently an associate professor of medicine at Boston University and medical director of women's health at VA Boston. She holds an adjunct appointment as lecturer on medicine at Harvard Medical School. Her work focuses on optimizing medical outcomes for women who have experienced trauma, as well as adapting systems of care to be trauma-informed and sensitive to the needs of survivors. She's authored multiple peer-reviewed publications on intimate partner violence and is the editor of the recently released Springer book, Trauma-Informed Healthcare Approaches, A Guide for Primary Care. After a brief hiatus, she is now back and very active on Twitter, at Meg Gerber. Welcome to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring, a practical guide for practicing physicians, Dr. Bradley Block interviews experts in and out of medicine to find out everything we should have been learning while we were memorizing Krebs cycle. The ideas expressed on this podcast are those of the interviewer and interviewee and do not represent those of their respective employers. And now, here's Dr. Bradley Block. Dr. Megan Gerber, thanks so much for being on the show today. Thank you for having me. So to start, let's just define what trauma is. So in the setting of trauma-informed care, how do you define trauma? Well, the best definition I've come across is from the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, or SAMHSA, which is a leader in trauma-informed care nationally. And, And SAMHSA basically says that trauma is an event, a series of events, or a set of circumstances that's experienced by an individual as either physically or emotionally harmful or life-threatening with lasting adverse effects on the individual's functioning and mental, physical, social, emotional, or spiritual well-being. So in a sense, a trauma is not necessarily one event, but it's, it's very much an interaction between an individual's events the way they perceive their environment, the level of support in their environment, and the degree of protective and resilience factors that they bring into the situation. So two people can experience and react entirely differently to the same event that you or I might objectively characterize as traumatic. So I think it's fair to say that trauma really should be conceptualized as a process. It's dynamic, and it really involves an interaction between an event, a series of events, as SAMHSA describes them, and then an individual or that individual's community level of vulnerability and strengths. So I hope that makes sense. Because when we think of trauma in terms of the, the medical or the surgical sense, we think of it as a specific event, right? Like a trauma surgeon is reacting to 
a patient being in a motor vehicle accident, right? So that's one specific event. But but you're saying in this situation, it's not isolated to one specific event, but in most cases, it's it's that series of events. Well, it could be one event. It could be, in fact, for the definition of PTSD, psychologists talk about criterion A trauma, which needs to be a serious life-threatening trauma. So certainly there are patients, people out there who've had single, salient, life-changing, life-threatening events. And then there are others who have had a ser- experienced a series of events, but two people can experience the same level of trauma and have very different outcomes, if that makes sense. So yes, I think it's fair to conceptualize trauma as a single life-changing, potentially life-threatening event, or as a series of experiences that an individual goes through. And so why is it that as physicians, we need to be aware of such events or, or how, put another way, how do we involve that in our framework of taking care of patients? Like if a patient's coming to see me for a nosebleed, right? How do I approach that patient in a trauma-informed way? So I guess to take a step back, what is, let's just define what is trauma-informed care in that setting. So trauma-informed care is really an approach to medical care or service delivery that's grounded in an understanding of and responsiveness to the impact of trauma. So for example, if I've led, if I'm one of the people in the world who's led a good, safe life, where I never had a reason to be afraid of someone touching my face or inserting something in my nose, you treating me for epistaxis may not be frightening to me at all. It may not, that exam of my nose or nares may not feel invasive. The the sight of blood may not feel frightening to me, but to a different person, it might be absolutely terrifying, especially someone who's had a history of maltreatment or assault to the face or whatever. So basically, trauma-informed care is grounded in the understanding that patients see us with a collective life experience. And trauma-informed care emphasizes physical, psychological, and emotional safety for us as clinicians and, and as for survivors as well. So trauma-informed care should create opportunities for survivors to rebuild a sense of control and empowerment in a, in a situation. So at its most basic, and you may think, well, I'm, it sounds like she's just describing patient-centered care really good principles of patient-centered care. And that's absolutely correct. The difference between trauma-informed care or the subtle difference between trauma-informed care and patient-centered care is trauma-informed care brings an understanding of the sheer prevalence of traumatic exposures among individuals and communities. So at its most basic, trauma-informed care understands how common trauma is throughout the life course. So We understand as medical clinicians that trauma is a whole lot more common than we'd like it to be. We understand that trauma may impact health, both physical and mental health, and also health-seeking behaviors. So 
patients who avoid care, patients who overutilize care, all may have trauma histories. We also need to be aware, and this is part of trauma-informed care, that patients may not be cognizant that the reactions they're having when they see us, when they experience treatment, are trauma-related. It may not make sense to think that someone who's who's very dysregulated or who's having a very extreme reaction to what may seem like a very simple physical exam maneuver isn't aware of what he or she is doing, but more often than not, they're not. And then we also, and you, you already alluded to this, that, that there is potential for re-traumatization in, in healthcare settings, that a nasal exam, a throat exam, those things can be very terrifying. And then I think the last part of trauma-informed care that's very empowering for us as clinicians is that healing can occur through safety in relationships. So having a doctor or a nurse who listens and helps you get through a procedure is also helping you heal, if that makes sense. I think to use the the nosebleed example again, for the patient that doesn't realize that their reaction is a result of their previous trauma, if I'm examining their face and they're flinching and they're hesitant about letting me examine them, I think in their mind, yes, someone's approaching my face. It is completely reasonable for me to be reluctant to allow them to do that. It doesn't seem like an unreasonable reaction from their perspective. And now from the doctor's perspective who examines 30 patients a day, and it's a rare, it's rare for patients to be hesitant to let me examine them, I'm not seeing things from their perspective. And so I, I could see where you're coming from with, with some of the patients not even recognizing that their their reaction is trauma, I guess, trauma-informed, a trauma-informed or induced reaction. Absolutely. And actually, I remember early in my career, I think some of us get this idea that there are certain exams that are sensitive. So we know that a pelvic exam is sensitive. We know that a breast exam is sensitive. I remember going to do a throat culture on a patient and she really just said, be careful and pushed me away. And, you know, this turned out to be someone who had sexual trauma that involved her throat. And so any invasive exam, and even beyond invasive exams, any any touching of someone's body, any exposure can be very threatening for patients. I mean, we, and hopefully students and residents are being taught this, but we constantly create challenges for survivors in medical care. I mean, there's a, a power dynamic to the relationship There's constant personal questioning. We're asking for disclosure of information that may be embarrassing or distressful. There's physical touch in areas that we know to be intimate and areas that are that are not. Removal of clothing is common. Patients we position patients in vulnerable physical positions constantly. And there may also be cultural issues that we're not aware of. So it's a very can be a very Seeking medical care for a survivor of trauma can be very, very difficult, and we're not always aware of that. So how do we minimize that? So I think at at all levels, our 
our medical system can continue to inflict trauma. And I think that starts even at the front desk, right? And it ends with the checkout. It's not just from the the doctor-patient interaction. And I think we're going to get to later involving the staff in trauma-informed care. But, But for now, how do we as the physicians minimize additional trauma that the medical system could be inflicting on patients, or at least our exam and our, our questioning. Absolutely. And, and I actually, I have a concentric circles model that almost looks like um, a target. And at the center is me slash my patient interactions. So the idea being that at the very center of the concentric circle is the clinician, the nurse, the physician, nurse practitioner, PA, person who is in a room, a professional in a room with the patient needing to do an interview and an exam. And that is the first part of what we can influence. And then the concentric circles include things. The next layer would be the environment, the exam room, the office. Beyond that would be the practice, the waiting room, as you said. And beyond that would be the division, the department, and the health system. So just focusing on the center, on the small part that we can control, simple things like number one, language. And these are routines that we can adopt and practice. So for example, avoiding language that is in any way personal. So it's not a bed, it's a table. It's not a sheet, it's a drape, right? We do not ask patients to open your mouth for me, right? For me, that's a common way that clinicians address patients. What we recommend is describing the exam as you go through it, asking permission for each step. But even before the exam, during the interview, it's important, especially if you're a specialist and and the patient is there for a targeted issue and you know you may be about to do a procedure, you can ask the patient, is there anything about this examination that's concerning to you? Have you had an exam like this before? Is there anything we can do to help you feel more comfortable during this exam? So I think that being aware of the potential effects of the exam on the patient and asking some simple questions, avoiding language that could be triggering. Other classic language is things like relax spread your legs. And I think many of us are already cognizant of avoiding that kind of language. I think, Brad, you also touched on something that's really important that um, I think is hopefully entering medical training, and it's self-awareness. I think really knowing how you're feeling when you're caring for a patient. And we know that human beings co-regulate with one another. And certainly in these volume-driven hectic healthcare settings that we're working in, we're really trying to get from room to room and not get behind, not be late, make sure we're earning our target RVUs. And it can be so easy to get frustrated with patients who are even slightly difficult. So sometimes just being aware of your own level of frustration doing some deep breathing, trying to just take a few minutes, stepping out of the room if you need to, just to kind of get your bearings if someone is being really challenging. So I think we're often not self-aware when we're in these these hectic situations. And, and I think that 
that can be an issue as well. That well, makes I think, sense. Yeah, well, we, yeah, we had talked about it before the show. I think in, in that situation, the patient might end up being triggered by something we said, even our facial expression, right, or part of the exam. Yet for us, it's extremely routine. So we don't recognize that they're triggered by something that we did. So then they they put up their defenses, and when they're putting up their defenses, we react to that, thinking that they're attacking us when really they're they're responding to some internal cue in response to something that we didn't even realize that we did, but but actually came externally from us. So I think it's important to recognize that that those patients that are that can be maybe the classic quote difficult patient is actually responding to something internally. And for us to then, because it's going to be completely human nature for us to feel attacked and then respond in kind. Totally. I think it helps to take a step back and say, okay, this person isn't actually attacking me, even though it seems that way. And then, then this allows you to take that mental step back and kind of, I think even put your, that allows you to put your shields up. So you don't feel like you're being attacked, reframing the situation. Absolutely. I a hundred percent agree with that. And I'm certainly not perfect. I had an experience last week where I felt that I just, I wasn't feeling well and it was the end of the afternoon and somebody was being extremely provocative and, you know, I just didn't handle it well. And we also have to be able to forgive ourselves. You know, we, we are healers. We do have the best intentions. But I think developing a routine for, you know, an interview that is, if, if it is, you are in a specialty situation and you are targeting a specific symptom or condition that you're aware of what that area of the body may have been through or what that, what, what the exam might mean for that person, even if you're just eliciting general outlines and just really being able to give the patient back as much control as possible during the exam. And I think that's a really important thing. So I mentioned avoiding triggering language, bedroom type language, but I think also letting the patient know and, and I work in women's health, so we do a lot of pelvic exams, and we very clearly say to the patient, you are in charge of this exam. If you need this to stop at any time, just say so, and it will stop. And then we let the patient know what we're going to do. And we ask her permission. At this point, we would like to examine X, Y, or Z. Is that okay? And so I think that this gives patients back a sense of control. So certainly. During a complex procedure, it's going to be harder to give a patient a sense of control, but letting the patient know if they need the exam to stop, it will stop, is a huge thing, very important. So what we're trying to do is give the patient a sense of control over the environment, minimizing the re-traumatizing effects of the exam, letting the patient know that the exam or the encounter will stop or slow down, and monitoring the patient for signs and symptoms of a trauma reaction, which is another another important thing. So is trauma-informed care like universal precautions in that you treat everybody the same way, right? I think if I remember my medical history correctly, universal precautions came about 
during the HIV epidemic and when there were certain people who were considered to be at higher risk, you would glove and gown and take extra precautions and that was discriminatory. And so universal precautions were, were born out of that. And as it turns out, that's just a better way to treat everybody. Is that the same thing with trauma-informed care? We should develop these routines and apply to everybody? Or should we be identifying patients that specifically need trauma-informed care? So that's a really important point. And I think most of us who are doing this work agree with the concept of universal precautions. The whole idea being that trauma is so common that we don't always know who has experienced trauma. And so we have developed a basic set of routines and principles when we approach patients, even from the time they first enter the building, that assumes a traumatic past. It doesn't mean that we walk on eggshells or, or treat everybody as if they are some kind of broken person. Quite the opposite. Patients who've experienced trauma are frequently very strong. Trauma-informed care actually is meant to tap into that resilience and to really help patients understand that we feel they are capable of, of healing and that what they've been through is, is also part of who they are. And it, the fact that they survived and moved forward is an important part of seeking health. So yes, people talk a lot about universal trauma precautions. We don't know whose blood has hep C or HIV, so we wear gloves. And it's the same thing to have basic trauma-informed care principles in your practice, starting at that, the center of that series of concentric circles, you, the people in the room with you, and the patient. So yeah, that's a really important point. So we mentioned earlier, so I want to bring it back to that, is, is the, those concentric circles. Right, you talked about the the physician being at the center. How do you then get that trauma informed care to spread to the to the wider circles? How do you get your staff involved so that the the patient who shows up late and then demands to be seen and but has been dismissed by other providers or you know has had a negative experience with other providers now they they haven't even reached you yet. And they might be having a triggering experience at the front desk. So how do we get our staff involved? Absolutely. So I think all of this requires different levels of commitment and energy, but certainly starting with your immediate staff. So that might be people on your team. It might be people in the practice. You could even have a brief We've had brown bag lunches, we've had practice meetings, we've had people come in and share basic principles of trauma-informed care. We encourage all staff to be trained, and it, it doesn't have to be an extensive, long training. It can simply be sharing the sheer prevalence of trauma, sharing cases or some common examples that, for example, the angry, late combative, demanding patient might actually be someone who has a trauma experience, has had a traumatic experience in healthcare, had trouble, you know, had to kind of force him or herself to get out the door and get dressed because coming to a medical environment is so challenging and difficult. And being greeted in a calm way 
is very important. And if that person is angry or dysregulated, still being greeted in a calm way is very reassuring to that patient. So I think there are a number of different resources. SAMHSA that I mentioned earlier is a good starting point. I will give you some links that you can post with the podcast that have some really good training materials for staffs. But I think basically just sharing the idea that somebody who's quote unquote acting out might actually be frightened, might be expecting a bad outcome, might have had a difficult time at the front door or in the lobby. And again, as as you so eloquently put it, it's not personal. It really isn't even about now. It's about the past, if that makes sense. The uh, the training, we talk about how the medical system can be traumatizing. But one thing that we talked about before the show is that the training process for physicians can be traumatizing. So how do we recognize this if it's happening in one of our residents or one of our medical assistant medical students? And then what do we do in that situation? Like, how do we how do we minimize that? How do we address that? That's a great question. And I think one of the things that I should probably have mentioned earlier is that a trauma, a truly trauma-informed system recognizes that staff people come with their own trauma histories as well. And certainly in communities that have a high degree of historical violence, the staff has often experienced collective trauma. So I think it's important that we understand that trauma-informed care also includes safety for employees and staff and recognition that, that we have also had our own traumas. I think that program directors, residency program directors, have become more cognizant as a group of the whole concept of trauma. I think Unfortunately, to some extent, it took hashtag Me Too to bring more awareness of sexual harassment and related forms of trauma to healthcare systems and medical schools and residencies. But there's definitely been heightened awareness in the last two or three years. There's interest on the part of AAMC and ACGME in making sure training programs are safe. I've seen more content at national meetings about addressing traumatic exposures and experiences among trainees. So I think that there is definitely more awareness of these issues. And I think it's very important that any training program create a culture of psychological safety. In other words, that there be people in the program that residents or medical students feel they can talk to and confide in without judgment. And I think that that that's going to be very important. And I think that there's, I'm seeing a lot more of that than when I was in training. I may be dancing around your question, but I do think that there's more awareness, not only of sexual harassment, but of the fact that people come to work with all sorts of histories. So hopefully I've answered no, you, you, yeah, you definitely, you definitely answered, you definitely answered it. One thing that kept coming up when I was reading about trauma-informed care was this question: "What happened to you?" Instead of asking, "What's mm-hmm. wrong with you?" And we haven't really gotten to that. So, one of because most of what 
you've been discussing has been how to approach the patients in in a trauma informed way, right? Like just the potential that pa- this this history taking this physical exam could trigger the patient's trauma history. But what we haven't talked about is talking about the trauma. So, but this, but yet this question kept coming up when I'm in my reading, what happened to you instead of asking what's wrong with you? So one, do we ever get to that in these visits? And if the answer is yes, how do you do that without, you know, while addressing the nosebleed, but not turning into into therapy, which I am not trained to do? Absolutely. That's a great question. And I actually, I can tell you a little bit how I came to working with trauma-informed care. And I think my journey included working with incarcerated women as a resident in upstate New York. And it was pretty incredible. A lot of them were being hospitalized for complications of HIV and substance use disorder. They were all trauma survivors. Most of them were serving mandatory minimums for nonviolent crime. Most of them were mothers separated from their kids. And I, I just remember at first thinking, wow, I want to, I want to work with women in HIV. Like I just found them to be the most amazing and inspiring group of women. And, and then I realized that, that it wasn't even so much HIV. It was working in public health, working in women's health and working with trauma. And at the time in the 1990s, working with trauma meant screening for domestic violence or intimate partner violence. So I was working in an urban safety net hospital out of residency, and I I was involved in this public health project to screen all patients for what we called domestic violence at the time. And so a big focus of the public health effort was to screen for domestic violence. Yet the problem was that domestic or intimate partner violence, as we call it now, was but one of the traumas that our patients were experiencing. And so I felt like the time and focus on screening was to some extent misdirected. Yes, we could hear that someone was in an unsafe situation and connect them to services, but what if they weren't in an unsafe situation? They still had experienced this awful trauma or their children had witnessed this awful trauma or they had experienced something that wasn't quite domestic violence, so did we care about it? So I think... I won't say that screening for trauma is inconsistent with trauma-informed care. That's actually not true. And in fact, many definitions of trauma-informed care include screening. But many people who write about trauma-informed care describe screening as one of the last things that you want to do. And the reason for that is that we should never be screening for diseases or conditions for which we don't have treatment or an intervention, right? We don't screen for cancers for which there is no treatment. So many practices and health systems and individual physicians are not yet ready to routinely screen all patients. That doesn't mean that trauma-informed care doesn't support screening. It most certainly does. But I think what I'm saying is that trauma-informed care adjusts care 
to accept that most people have experienced some form of trauma. And one thing that we can do if we're not quite ready to screen for specific traumas is to use what's called a universal education model, which has really been tested and developed in family planning clinics. And the the idea is that if you suspect trauma, you can provide an educational message to the patient. Like, you know, occasionally we see patients who, adult patients who have experienced difficult childhoods or maltreatment in childhood, and they often present with this kind of chronic pain that's hard to define. And and then you go on to explain how that pain is treated. So the healthcare provider or clinician relates an educational message about how a trauma might relate to the patient's presenting complaint or concern, alludes to or describes the trauma. So this can happen in patients who have been maltreated in childhood and then offers resources without asking the patient specifically, did this happen to you? Another way of looking at this is to limit the details of a trauma history. So I work in a setting where patients have a high degree of trauma exposure and I will ask them about trauma in a very general way and then offer referral. So how do you do that? There are a number of different ways of doing that. You can say that sometimes people who've experienced maltreatment in the past or difficult events may go on to develop X, Y, or Z. You can use a set question. One of the questions that is validated and commonly used is the PCPTSD5 STEM question. So Patients are given this one question first. It's sometimes things happen to people that are unusually or especially frightening, horrible, or traumatic. For example, a serious accident or fire, a physical or sexual assault or abuse, an earthquake or flood, a war, seeing someone be killed or seriously injured, having a loved one die through homicide or suicide. Have you ever experienced this kind of event? And if the answer is no, there's no further questioning, right? So this is the beginning of a question for PTSD. So for practices, just to summarize, for practices that are ready for screening, it's certainly fine to ask specific screening questions or ask a question more like the general question that leads to questioning about PTSD or simply acknowledging that Many of our patients have had traumatic experiences. This can lead to pain. This can lead to substance use. Our goal here is to help you get healthy. So that's a little bit of a long-winded explanation, and I hope that that makes sense, that that the questioning doesn't necessarily need to be what exactly happened to you, but it can be, have you had a difficult life course, and could that be related to what's happening here now? So I think in one situation, you're more equipped to handle the the answer, right? Like if you're going to start with the questions that the, the screening questions for potential PTSD, whereas the more general, there are patients that have had trauma histories that have similar symptoms to yours, right? I think is more, sounds like it's more for those who don't necessarily have an answer to 
this was my trauma. This, this is what happened. Where do I go from here? Right? Right. Those of us that don't have a, a therapist or psychiatrist or psychologist to send the patient to or to, to help the patient along that road. Right. And I'm, I'm in no way suggesting that, that screening not happen. I think the important thing is to understand that screening is a desired goal, but that there needs to be an intervention in place. There needs to be a series of responses. And it is certainly fine to ask a patient about trauma exposure in its general outlines. Patients often know what you're talking about. And they're you're basically giving them an opportunity to understand that what they're experiencing in healthcare, whether it's a, an extreme reaction to a physical exam or, or an invasive exam, or whether it's a reluctance to come in, maybe these, many of these patients have been invalidated by healthcare. They have many symptoms. They often, ha- often have medically unexplained symptoms. They've been told that things are in their head and, and just really being able to say that sometimes things happen that cause physiologic changes in your body and we are here to work with you to treat that. But having them begin to perhaps understand that there is some connection between difficult experiences in the past and some of what's occurring in the present is, is can be a powerful connection for people. So for those out there that are looking to take a deeper dive into trauma-informed care, you had mentioned before some resources that you're going to send me that we'll include in the show notes. But first and foremost, there is a book out there. So please tell us about your book. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. So I edited a book called Trauma-Informed Healthcare Approaches, A Guide for Primary Care. It's published by Springer. A group of us worked on this book, which is really the first book of its kind that's directed towards adult primary care providers and settings. And I, I will say, though, that that much of what's in the book is still relevant to those of you who are interventionalists, who are hospitalists, who are doing surgery. A group of us are working on checklists. Many of you have read Dr. Gawande's Checklist Manifesto, we're working on trauma-informed checklists that practices can easily implement around certain procedures like endoscopy. And I think having a checklist, having a set of principles that, that you use in your practice can be incredibly useful. So I think the audience of this podcast is very broad. It's an interdisciplinary audience. I've, I've refrained from trying to be terribly prescriptive, but we do have some really good toolkits in the book. There are a number of organizations that have really useful resources, and I'll, I'll share them with you. And what about you? Where can people find you online? Oh, so I am on Twitter. I am at Meg Gerber on Twitter. I have been developing a website where I will, I will also share that with you where I've posted some narrative writing that I've done. And I think part of the reason for doing narrative writing and sharing patient cases is to try to illustrate the principles of trauma-informed care. 
um, really the idea that some of these angry, distrustful, negative patients really can be people who've had very bad experiences with us as a profession and difficult experiences with the rest of the human race before they try to collaborate with us to for healing. And again, if you have a longitudinal relationship with a patient, you're a primary care team, you're a specialist who treats a patient for chronic disease, that's going to be very different than if you're in an emergency department and you're seeing somebody once. But simple things like avoiding triggering language, explaining what you're doing, asking permission, being willing to stop or slow down. These are these are very powerful ways of returning control to the patient in real time. You can either work to push them away from the system or you can work to bring them back into the system. And I think that those, those ideas are, are really a great summary of what we've been talking about today and what everyone can do. And, and, and one thing that you, that you talked about was developing a routine of respectful care and one of my concerns before this conversation was, you know, you've got a bunch of patients in the waiting room and this, you, you end up with a, a triggered patient with a trauma history because of something that you inadvertently did. And now all of a sudden your, your visits or this visit is, is becoming a lot more time consuming and everyone's going to be waiting a whole lot longer. But it sounds like those simple things that you can add into your routine like universal trauma-informed care for everybody is going to minimize the risk of that happening. And in the end, it's actually going to save you time. It's going to allow you to increase your patient volume because you have that many more care patients that, that see you as a trusting person, a trusting physician. They're going to then refer their friends and their colleagues and their, it'll just help you to grow your practice, to help more people. And it, it doesn't seem like it requires that much effort. Right. I mean, I think that many of you are already doing things that are trauma-informed. So, you know, for example, and I know we're probably moving towards wrapping up, but you do a procedure, you give the patient something in writing. You know, the after-visit summary that so many of us are using is especially important for patients who've experienced trauma because they may seem like they're listening and they may walk out of the room and not remember a thing because they may have had some element of dissociation or just have felt terrified the whole time. So even some of the things that we are already doing that are good patient-centered care, like handing a patient an after-visit summary, are, are, are really important, especially important for survivors. So just another, you're probably doing more than you think right, if that makes sense. It does. But after what we learned today, we can all be doing a little bit more. So Dr. Megan Gerber, author of Trauma-Informed Healthcare Approaches, A Guide for Primary Care. Thank you so much for being on the show today and sharing your wisdom with us. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. That was Dr. Bradley Block at the Physician's Guide to Doctoring. He can be found at physiciansguidetodoctoring.com or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have a question for a previous guest or have an idea for a future episode, send a comment on the webpage. Also, please be sure to leave a five-star review on your preferred podcast platform. We'll see you next time on the Physician's Guide to Doctoring.